Hey there. Welcome to the lounge. Whether you find yourself dealing with an early summer or a late winter, we invite you to add or peel layers as needed and lounge with us for the next hour or so. We've got stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythms of the season. I'm your host, Keith Farley, and the theme of our lounge today is Get Over It. Not in the flippant way you might have heard on the playground or from an insensitive ex, but as an exhortation to see objects in your path as hurdles to get over rather than roadblocks that halt your progress. Matt and Carol Olmos will be along shortly to relate a story of adventure and danger where what goes down must come up. Double Batch Daddy share a new tune with us that invites us to connect with the hum that comes alive this time of year. And Klaus Farley and I will pair an Oscar-winning film with a delicious and healthy entree. Indie duo Sky Christie will join us to talk about how the challenges of lockdown spawned an unexpected collaboration among siblings. And later on, I'll share a couple of stories that show us how to meet challenges with acceptance, humor, and creativity. So, here we are. It's Easter Sunday, Passover, and Ramadan all at once. And whether you're honoring the challenges of breaking free from slavery, focusing on the insights that come with a month-long fast, or celebrating the transition from death to new life, the sun rose on all of us in Los Angeles today at 619, and it won't set until 726 this evening. That's April in a nutshell. It's everything all at once. We're caught between winter and summer, and we never know from one minute to the next whether we need a heavy coat or a tank top or one for the morning and another for the afternoon and then back again as the sun goes down. A dear friend of mine shared a post from Sweden that showed a snow flurry outside her window. She tagged it, so over this. That was the same day that it was approaching 100 degrees here in L.A. Three days later, we dropped to 65, and we're headed back to 80 today. Baseball is back. I remember taking my family to ball games during the summer. When the kids were little, day games were the only option. But if you're in the wrong seats, no, if you're in any seats on a 110-degree afternoon, there's no amount of peanuts and Cracker Jack that'll make you ever come back. So... I decided to learn from my mistakes and schedule a game for a Sunday afternoon in the middle of April to show my kids that there's more to the game than trying to avoid heat stroke. But the joke was on me, as a freak heat wave that weekend sent temps into the mid-90s. I mostly go to ball games alone now. To put it plainly, April is bonkers. She's out of her mind. She's got a multiple personality disorder, mood swings, and bipolar tendencies. Never is the old Yiddish proverb, make plans, God laughs, more apt. April requires exceptional levels of creativity and flexibility to survive her fire and ice. She might bring you a bouquet of flowers in the form of a tasty refund on tax day. She might wash away all of your savings, and then some, in the flood of an audit. So what are you going to do, huh? What are you going to do? You're going to get over it. Move through it. You'll harness Aries the ram and Taurus the bull, and you'll push through. 
You'll persevere. You'll persist. And when you feel overwhelmed or outmatched, you'll know to take shelter from the storm and wait it out. And maybe, in that quiet moment, you'll feel that hum, the one that replenishes and revitalizes you and urges you forward. I start to feel that hum. Out of a dead quiet comes a little strong. The song is true, and every molecule to me is singing it with you, singing it with you. Ah. All creation sighs when a caterpillar's turn to Waking up to, whoa. 
And now, a story from Matt and Carol Almos of a transformative trip to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Rest assured, all of the characters you'll meet in this true story survived. It's well before sunrise on January 27, 2002. My wife Carol and I are standing on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. It's pitch black and the temperature is 29 degrees, although it feels a whole lot colder than that. We're getting ready to descend into the canyon and we're each going to do it on the back of a mule. The decision to have this adventure was completely spur of the moment. We were on a driving trip of the Southwest, Joshua Tree, Sedona, Flagstaff, Vegas. We had heard that trips to the Grand Canyon were most rewarding if you take the time to venture down into it. We had also heard that hiking into the canyon is no easy feat. So on a whim, just a few days prior, Carol checked to see if there was any space on a mule train. And guess what? There was. We're going to take these mules on the legendary Bright Angel Trail all the way to the bottom, spend the night at the Phantom Ranch, and then tomorrow morning, we'll ride all the way back to the top. I'm from a cow town, but I don't have much experience riding horses. And being up high on top of such a large animal makes me very nervous. When the Brady Bunch rode their mules to the bottom of the canyon... They just seemed so sweet and pint-sized. But this morning, I've learned that mules are often bigger than horses. It makes me want to back out of this whole thing, but it's too late. The orientation has started. This is what we learn. Number one. This is a very safe activity, much safer than walking. Since 1887, over 600,000 people have made the trip down on a mule. And no tourist has ever died. The second thing we learn is that the mules like to walk very close to the edge of the path, sometimes inches away from a drop into oblivion. That will take some getting used to. The final and perhaps most important point is, it's up to us as riders to keep the mule train together. In order to do that, we are expected to use our riding crops on a regular basis to give our mules a slap on the rump. These mules are tough, and we are not hurting them. If a mule realizes they've fallen too far behind the mule in front of them, they'll run to catch up. And no one wants to be on a mule running downhill on a skinny rocky trail next to a thousand foot drop. One of our lead cowboys, Chris, apropos of nothing, speculates that Bill Clinton is the sort of person who would fail to hit his mule properly. We look around and confirm to our relief that Bill Clinton is not part of our group. We will be okay. With that, we mount our mules and ride to the trailhead. The cowboys seem to be lining us up in some strategic way, the logic of which is not shared with us. At the head of our 11-mule train is Cowboy Chris. Behind him is a rather impressive, petite, 80-year-old woman named Barbara, riding a smaller mule named Crybaby. Barbara is actually a National Park Service employee who is fulfilling her duty to experience all of the recreational activities here so she can better inform the guests. After Barbara is Carol atop a mule named Willow, I'm right behind her, riding a mule named Roscoe. Behind me is another couple and a family of four with preteen children. Our second cowboy guide is bringing up the rear. We begin our descent into the frozen canyon. 
It's an unwelcome surprise that the trail is covered in ice. Just as the cowboys said they would, our mules choose to walk right along the very edge of the canyon, even as their hooves slip and slide on the slick, icy patches. It's so easy to imagine one of those slips causing Roscoe to stumble and fall over the edge of the cliff, bringing me down with him. But that isn't what happens. Roscoe and Willow stay sure-footed. They continue their descent unfazed and undeterred. The journey into the canyon is a journey back in time. Over hundreds of millions of years, the Colorado River has carved through the earth, revealing new layers and new colors along the way. It's also a journey through the seasons. The farther down into the canyon you go, the warmer it gets. After an hour or so, the ice on the path is completely gone. We remove layers of clothing, along with layers of fear. The sun climbs higher and the unspeakable beauty and grandeur of the place becomes impossible to ignore. Trepidation has been completely replaced by awe. This is the way to see the Grand Canyon. Only a fool would stay at the rim and be satisfied. A couple of hours later, we're halfway to the bottom. We cross a stream, and as we do, the wind stirs the trees above and little oval leaves swirl and pirouette around us, flashing in the sunlight like silver dollars. It's a magical moment. Later, when I mention it to Matt, he knows exactly the moment I'm referring to because he was having the same peak experience. Both of us know that we'll remember it for the rest of our lives. An hour later, we've entered a section of the trail that's known as the Devil's Corkscrew. The switchbacks are steep and the drop-offs are treacherous here, but we've learned by now to trust our mules. The lush trees are gone now, replaced by brittle sagebrush clinging to sandstone ablaze with red, yellow, and black. As we approach another sharp corner, I breathe in the fresh air and do my best to mark the moment. Not just the view, but the feeling that comes with discovering that such wonder exists. And that's when Crybaby slides on some gravel, loses his footing, and catapults 80-year-old Barbara into the Grand Canyon. Lots of different things happen simultaneously. First of all, Cowboy Chris dismounts and yells at all of us to stay on our mules. He was reading my mind because my first impulse was to get off of my mule. Willow seems to agree that I should get off as she shuffles nervously. She takes a few steps forward, then back, forward and back, over and over. She won't stop moving. In fact, all of the mules in the train know something is seriously wrong. They are twisting and turning and harumphing on the edge of a steep drop in the middle of the devil's corkscrew. Then we hear Barbara's voice from over the cliff, yelling that she is okay. I can see just enough of the downward slope to spot a lone sagebrush growing out the side of the cliff with Barbara awkwardly laying in it like a hammock. Amazingly, this tiny dried up bush caught and held Barbara's petite frame without breaking. If it was me falling, that sagebrush would have been flattened and I would be smashed like a pancake at the bottom of the canyon. As Roscoe continues his panic attack and involuntary pacing back and forth on the narrow cliff, 
it dawns on me that this is how I'm going to die. What will people say when they learn of my death? He was a good, kind person. The creative community will feel his loss. No, what they're going to say is, did you hear Matt almost died? Yeah, his mule launched him into the fucking Grand Canyon. I'm embarrassed to admit what I was thinking. Our theater company was quite active at the time, and I was thinking, huh, if we die up here, will Stephen Lee Morris, theater editor of the LA Weekly, write a short blurb about us? That'd be kind of cool, but not worth dying for. I look over at Matt, bobbing around on top of his shaky, fidgety mule, and he raises his eyebrows and gives me a tight smile, like, it's been nice knowing ya. Meanwhile, the rescue effort is underway. Cowboy Chris scrambles over the edge, disappears from view, and somehow manages to retrieve Barbara from the sagebrush and nudge her ahead of him like a mother cat. Barbara's head appears, then her shoulders, as she's pushed from behind. Finally, she rolls back up over the cliff edge and onto the path. She sits on the trail, staring at the dirt and gasping. From my front row seat, I believe I may be the only one in the train who realizes that while Barbara has been rescued, Cowboy Chris might just be fucked. He is still on the wrong side of the cliff. His hands and feet are struggling to get purchase, but this section is just a bunch of gravel and small rocks, and there is nothing to grab onto. I can hear rocks giving way and falling down into the canyon as he kicks and flails. His hands clench and unclench as he searches for something, anything to pull himself up. His eyes are so big. Somehow, he finally wiggles his way back up onto the path. Miraculously, everyone is unhurt. Everyone is okay. With the possible exception of Crybaby. I just met Crybaby, so I don't know him well. But I think it's safe to say he isn't himself. My sense is his confidence is shot. Once everyone stops almost dying, we have to wait several more excruciating minutes on our nervous mules while the cowboys complete an incident report. Chris approaches me with a clipboard. As the rider directly behind Barbara and Crybaby, I am the closest witness and need to sign off on the report. When I do, my signature looks like a magnitude 10 on the Richter scale. For the first time, I realize how badly my hands are shaking. I start to wonder what the exit strategy is going to be here. Is a helicopter going to be called in to lift us out of the devil's corkscrew? That's when I see Cowboy Chris lifting Barbara back up onto Crybaby, back in position right behind him. Amazingly, that means Barbara and Crybaby are going to continue to take the lead. Before we know it, our mule train is back in motion, descending through the Devil's Corkscrew. It's a spectacular sight. But now, I'm kind of seeing it through a different lens. For some strange reason, I can't quite shake the image of an 80-year-old woman getting launched into the Grand Canyon. I can't help but think that out of 600,000 trips into the Grand Canyon, I picked the one with a mule that couldn't stay on his feet. And that mule is our leader, 
Before long, we arrive at the bottom of the canyon. We're on a portion of the trail that runs along the raging Colorado River. In less than an hour, we will arrive at Phantom Ranch. Thoughts keep swirling rapidly through my head. What's going to happen the next morning when it's time to journey back to the top? Am I participating in an activity that is safe? How in the hell are we going to get out of here? Matt and Carol's Adventures in Mule Riding continues on next month's lounge. You never know the twists and turns that life will take, especially if you've chosen a career in the arts. Hopefully, you have people around who are willing to lend their support and who are even willing to carry you when you feel like you can't take another step. The Actors Fund is an organization that does just that. It provides stability and resiliency to artists throughout their careers. Services provided by your generous donations to the fund include emergency financial assistance, affordable housing, health care and insurance counseling, senior care, secondary career development, and more. For more information about the Actors Fund or to make a tax-deductible donation, go to theactorsfund.org. Sophie and Georgia Edwards make up the singer-songwriter duo Sky Christie. And as I was pondering who I'd like to talk to about getting over obstacles, my wife and daughter went out to see their first show ever and came back with a glowing review. I've known and loved these two since they were little, and I'm thrilled to have them share with you the story of how the restrictions of a global pandemic fueled their unlikely transformation from siblings to songwriters. Sky Christie is your band. You guys are sisters, uh, which is fraught with a whole lifetime of challenges and joys. Mm -hmm. um, talk a little <laughs> bit about your folks and where they came from. Basically, our parents are both in the music business. They're and songwriters and producers. We just grew up in a really musical atmosphere, just around a lot of artists, watching our parents create. And it was very inspiring for Georgia and I. We were honestly, like, in the beginning, never really too interested in music because I think we were just so around it that we were just kind of like, like, I was painting and Georgia was doing yeah. other things. But then as we grew older, we realized it, we're very passionate about what they do. When did music turn on for you guys? It Probably really, high school because we both went to a performing arts school. Yeah. And we kind of discovered, like, our own lane. We went into a choir, and we sang at Carnegie Hall together. Mm -hmm. And we realized, oh, we like singing harmonies. When you guys were little, would you guys say that you were, like, really super tight, close siblings? We weren't close at all. Sophie was really wild, and I was very quiet. <laughs> but We were just kind of opposites, but yeah. then when we really got in high school and Georgia got her driver's license... Mm -hmm. Um, she could drive me to school, and I was the only person she could drive. And it was just kind of one of those things where it's like, hi, um, nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When COVID hit, George and I would literally go on long drives and just, we'd, 
we'd listen to a lot of the Eagles and the mm. harmonies, and yeah. we'd be harmonizing with each other. Mm-hmm. And just start from there, going back and forth from school. Then Sophie came into my choir, and I was seeing her more often. <laughs> and yeah, we were practicing at home together. Yeah. She was alto, I was soprano, so we were yeah, harmonizing with each practice. other. Yeah. And then, Sophie, I know you're the class of 2020, mm-hmm. um, and you got hit with a with a wallop when COVID hit. Uh, and talk a little bit about that experience of your senior year in high school being part of a pandemic. It was really like it just came to a close so quickly. And it was like right towards the end, like we were about to finish. So honestly, I'd say I was on the luckier side compared to like the next year, because some kids didn't even get a senior year. But I was like, I mean, it it was all graduation that was online. Like we just watched a video and I I cried when I watched the graduation. I felt so bad for her. (laughs) And we were just watching it and it was just kind of like, oh man, this is it. That's the end. It all felt a bit like still. There you guys are at home, <laughs> alone with each other, 24-7. Yeah. It's one thing to sing harmonies with your sister in the car while you're driving them to school. Mm-hmm. It's quite another to be around them 24-7. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, what was that like for you? I think... I really had to be close to Sophie because in that time I was very scared of the pandemic. And so Sophie, I just needed her around me 24-7. And through that, we had to figure out some things to do to entertain ourselves. So well, she just kind of What became... was it like for you when, when she reached out to you and needed you there 24-7? Was that... I think it was just like it was one of those moments where like I couldn't really reach out to my closest friends and so Georgia became my closest friend and we kind of became like each other's ride or die for everything and spent every waking moment together. Sophie plays the guitar thank God yeah and so we started singing and writing together with our mother and she has her special garage that we went into every Wednesday night. And yeah, in the hot summer nights, we were sweating. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sweating, writing music, and yelling at each other. Was yeah. she putting you through the paces? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. That's when. That's Talk a little bit about that experience of of the the challenge of your mom, who is a songwriter with a some pretty serious credentials. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, she's a real businesswoman about yeah. the industry. And so she was on top of us. She literally sat us down in the garage. She's like, all right, so this is how you write a song. And, and she, we had no idea. We had we, no we, clue. We resented the whole, not her teaching us, but like before we just never tried writing a song. It was too intimidating for us because of our parents. Like, what did she teach you? Well. well the structure of the a song? The structure of a yeah, song. Like. Um, the chorus, the pre verse, pre chorus, verse, bridge, bridge, you know, like all of those things that she was teaching, and we just had no clue. Like she was teaching us like hooks, like you got to make like, and I'd come up with something for the verse, and she'd be like, "It's not a hook." Yeah, and then she'd be like, "Let's work it until it's a hook," and I mean, very valuable lesson that was. Yeah, yeah, and it really helped because I think the stuff we are writing is definitely a lot catchier because of her. There must have been some moments of, of friction there because oh, you yeah. got your mom is mm-hmm. now in a position of a collaborator. Yeah. How did you guys work through that? I think honesty is one of the best parts of our music. With Sophie and I, like we tell each other if something sounds terrible. 
and yeah. our mother, we'd fight with her, but we have to respect her because she's been in the industry a lot she longer than She knows more us. than we do, but also, like, we have kind of, a pers- like, a, a young perspective where... We're all learning from each other. Yes, exactly, yeah. But there's fighting. Lots. <laughs> yes. How do you resolve the fights? How does it come to um, a resolution? The song is good. <laughs> yes, that's... I think that's how we recover. We're yeah. like, wait, I, I like this song. And yeah. she's like, so do I. And then we're like... We did it. <laughs> Let's <Yeah>. hug. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. So here you are now. What song would you like to share with us today? Well, we just came out with our song, Black Lake. What's Black Lake about? Well, we were tired of writing, like, heartbreak songs. <laughs> Love classic song. heartbreak songs. Yeah. yeah. There's too many. <laughs> so we um, wanted to write a song that would empower us. And make us feel like um, we could do some damage to someone. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. exactly.
Sophie and Georgia Edwards are Sky Christie. We're big fans of their music. We love who they are, and we can't wait to hear what they come up with next. Hey there, welcome back. It's time for dinner and a movie with me and my wife and eating and film partner. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to quote Sparks here and I'm going to yo-yo you and you'll yo-yo me back. Because I'm your suburban homeboy? Yeah. Good to have you back, Anne. It's nice to be back in the lounge with you. Talking about movies and food, two of our favorite things. Mm-hmm. I have to just take a second and say that Coming to this movie and this dish was harder than it needed to be. Yep. It was an obstacle we had to overcome. (laughs) It's in theme. (laughs) We started talking about it about two weeks ago. I was like, every movie is about overcoming obstacles. What are we going to do to make it interesting or to relate it to what we wanted to do? So we talked and talked about all the different movies we could. I threw out Muriel's Wedding, and sure. then we started We started going in the M's, and we ended up with Muhammad Ali. Right. Um, the great Ken Burns has made a documentary about Muhammad Ali, four-parter, two hours each. It's an investment of your time, but well worth it. He is one of the uh, major figures in sports and politics American and history. religion in the yeah. 20th century, for sure. And so we went into that thinking maybe we would recommend the fourth episode, which was we thought would be sort of when Ali discovers he has Parkinson's and then how he sort of reinvented himself as an ambassador. Right. Which is not really what that fourth episode turned out to be. No, um, it is tremendous. You should watch it anyway. Any Ken Burns episode of anything is remarkable. But then we, we were like, Oh, my goodness. The movie that we should have been thinking about all along, which is the best film of the year. Coda. Coda. Which has a really great double meaning uh, in that C-O-D-A stands for... Child of Deaf Adults. It's also a musical term, which means the tail end of a piece. If you put a coda on it, it's a nice little outro. Clever. So it's sort of the next stage of life. Um. And it's a wonderful film uh, about a young woman, Ruby, who is a child of deaf adults who loves to sing. Well, she finds singing as a refuge away from the intense responsibility she feels she has in her family being the translator for her family. And in this movie, um, their livelihood is um, at stake. And and at the same time, she's, you know, really finding her own identity outside her family life. And so she is burdened with the choice of how to do that. It's a movie that's filled with obstacles. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a perfect obstacle. Like she is the hearing daughter of deaf parents and she loves to sing, which her parents don't understand because they've never heard music in their life. They're also in a position where their family business is being threatened and they need her to be that bridge between their deafness and the hearing world. But she gets this opportunity through this music teacher to go and audition to the Berkeley College of Music, which is going to take her away from the home just as they're starting to create a co-op 
in order to take care of the fishermen in their village, but they need her there to translate. So there's obstacles after obstacles upon obstacles to overcome. It's hard to not like Coda. Um, Terrific performances, which I want to get into from all of the characters. And what to me was the absolute highlight of the Oscar ceremony was Troy Kotzer's speech accepting his award for Best Supporting Actor for his role in this film. And I want you to talk a little oh, bit I about lo- your relationship with I Troy. I love it. I got to work with um, Troy Kutzer at um, the Pasadena Playhouse doing Our Town. And I've worked with Deaf West before on other projects, but um, this one I got to work with Troy and just see his brilliance and his sense of humor and his sense of community. And he is everything that this performance and his speech captured. Troy, just A, Gave a great speech. Yeah. He had humor and heart in equal measure. It was just a, a deeply moving moment that should, by all, all means, go down in Oscar history as one of the great Oscar moments of all time. Yeah, absolutely. So we liked Coda a lot. We did. And so in pairing it with um, a dish, we had to come up with something that we liked a lot. We had to do something with fish because this is being a fishing village. And I want you to talk a little bit about your relationship with fish. Well, I used to love fish, and um, I got some mercury poisoning abroad. And and it took about a good decade and a half or two to come back to fish. But I've been cooking a lot of fish, as it's important in your diet to eat. And, um, and so we found, I found tilapia is one of the easiest fish to throw on it's the barbie real, real mild yep. in terms of flavor no fishiness to it at all which you get with um some salmon. other salmon could be tuna can be fishy oh yeah so i think tilapia is just an easier way to go back into fish so the recipe we're gonna uh, recommend for you to try out is a very very simple delicious recipe for tilapia veracruz veracruz comes from the um sauce that you put the tilapia in. It's a real simple sauce of um, garlic, onion, tomato, and um, the thing that gives it its kick are um, green olives and capers. Mm, lovely. And it's a great, it's a very, very simple sauce. Pour it over the top of tilapia, throw it in the oven for 15 minutes, and yeah, you're good to go. Yeah, according to our craft, you know, cheese package, it says you can also put cheddar cheese on top. You can cheese it up if you want. This is a great dish if you're watching Carbs. Pair it with a nice vegetable, some string beans or some squash. A great weeknight dish. So simple, so easy, so delicious. You'll be glad you made tilapia Veracruz. And maybe then sit down and watch the Academy Award winner for Best Picture and Best Supporting Actor, Coda. Hey, do you want to hear a funny fishing story? I do. Okay, so um, my dad took all my brothers out fishing when we were camping one summer, uh-huh. and he wouldn't let any of us girls on the boat because he said we were just not good fishermen. We were like, we're going to show them. So we got a bunch of buckets, and then my sister and I made a couple of fake nets out of uh, hats we had. We caught about 13 fish, put them in our buckets, and my dad came home, and they didn't catch one fish, and the girls rocked it. That's my favorite fishing story because my dad was like, what did you do? And we were like, we used our brains, our female brains. All right, Anne. 
That's our dinner in a movie segment. We'll see you next month. Ciao. I first encountered stories of the coyote when I was around five years old. My father and I were members of a group called Indian Guides, which was a part of the YMCA. Indian Guides was a sort of appropriation of indigenous culture filtered through the lens of the suburban white male. It's frankly a little cringy to think about now, but if I'm honest... I have to confess that I loved dressing up in the leather moccasins and the vest with the fringe on it that I made myself from a kit we received. I loved having an appointment that involved spending alone time with my dad, calling him clear water and having him call me fresh wind in honor of our hopes to clean up the environment. And I loved the time we spent sitting in a circle with other five-year-olds and their dads, singing traditional songs and listening to traditional stories. The first coyote story I remember comes directly from those Indian guide meetings in the late 60s and early 70s. It's called How the Coyote Got Their Powers. In the beginning, the great spirit set a date wherein they would dole out powers to animals on a first-come, first-served basis. Coyote was determined to get the best gift, so he tried to stay awake all night by putting sticks in his eyelids to keep them open. But his eyelids got too heavy, the sticks broke, and the exhausted coyote slept through the morning and ended up becoming a scavenger because there were no good gifts left by the time he got to the temple of the Great Spirit. And that's why coyotes, and by extension kids who stay up past their bedtimes, are lazy and shifty. But there's also the story of how Coyote brought fire to the people by sneaking up to the top of the mountain of the greedy fire beings and observing their movements and discovering that the perfect moment to grab some fire to share with everybody was the moment when the last guard of the night was heading off to bed and the morning guard was taking their place. The morning guardian was still half asleep when they noticed Coyote scampering off with some of their fire, and that gave Coyote just the head start he needed to bestow this boon on humanity. Coyote stories can also be quite ribald. There's the one where Coyote buries himself in a garden, hoping to disguise his penis as a turnip so that one of the women working in the field might accidentally tug on it. I think Coyote stories vary in direct correlation to how uptight the teller is. Coyote might be portrayed as a shifty, lazy 'er ne'er-do-well, or as a clever hero who's able to outsmart gods and maidens alike. He might show up to trip you up and steal your food and money. He might help you survive an impossible situation with the most outlandish scheme you've ever heard, as he does in this story about the coyote and the giant. Coyote was cruising through the woods one day, whistling a merry tune that was definitely in the public domain, when he came across a woman walking the other way. She stopped him in his tracks. Turn back, she cried. There's a giant in this valley and he eats everything he sees. Seems like I've got a bit in common with this giant, Coyote said. I'm sure we'll be friends. 
be silly, the old woman warned. I'm talking about a real giant here. He's fierce. Well, if we can't bond over food, I just might have to take this giant out. Especially if he's terrorizing good people like you. Coyote thought that maybe the giant would be the size of a bull moose, and he figured he could take out a bull moose, so he bade the old woman farewell and went whistling on his way. But he picked up a large stick to defend himself, just in case. Coyote walked a while with no giants or moose in sight when he came upon a huge tunnel. As he entered the tunnel, he began to hear a woman crying weakly. He walked farther in, and he came upon her lying limp on the wet floor. What's wrong? he asked. I'm dying of starvation, she replied. I haven't had anything to eat in a week. Well, we're not far from the entrance of this tunnel, and the entrance isn't that far from town. Here, let me help you. You don't get it, do you? The weak woman gasped. This isn't a tunnel. We're inside the giant and there's no way out. Seriously? Coyote inquired. That's pretty cool. Never been inside a giant before. I'm going to look around a bit, but I'll be back. Coyote walked deeper into the tunnel and found a group of people huddling together and weeping for their fate. What have we done? They cried. We're lost. You're not lost. I bet I know where you are. If these high ceilings are any indication, you're in the giant's belly. How many people can say they've ever been in a giant's belly? You're going to be famous. We're metaphorically lost, you stupid coyote. One of them shouted. Also, we're starving and there's no way out. Hang on, Coyote said. If we're really in a giant's belly, then these walls must be made of meat. Let me see. Oh, yeah. That's just a bunch of fatty giant belly. I bet it tastes like bacon. And you know what? It did. Soon, all of the inhabitants were well-fed and a little happier, but one of them was still pretty upset. Okay, so we're not hungry anymore, but we'll still never get out of here alive. Ah, don't be too sure about that. If I can find the giant's heart, I'll stab it until it's dead. All you need to do is wait until you feel an earthquake. That'll be the death throes, and then when he opens his mouth to take his last breath, we run out. Easy peasy, cardiac squeezy. Coyote set off to find the heart of the giant. It was the size of a volcano, and it looked like it was pumping hot lava. Coyote stabbed at the heart until the hot blood filled the giant's abdominal cavity. It wasn't long before a huge earthquake started to shake the world around them. Here we go, Coyote shouted. Get ready to run, and don't forget to pick up our friend who's stuck in his throat. As the giant breathed his last... All of the travelers caught in his belly were able to scurry out with the wind at their backs, and Coyote made it out just as the giant's mighty mouth closed forever. If you're a regular listener to The Lounge, you'll remember that we started the year with a goal in mind, and we spent some time mapping out a path to achieving that dream. Next, 
We identified habits that were holding us back from achieving our goals, and we let go of them. Only then did we start to march forward on the path we'd planned. And at some point, we're going to find that that path leads into a cave that lands us in a giant's belly. What then? Sure, there'll be folks fleeing in the opposite direction who'll warn us that staying on our path will lead to ruination. I spend a lot of time training young actors, and I've come across several in the last couple of months whose parents warned them that pursuing a career path in the arts was a fool's errand. I heard it myself when I was starting out, and I've seen numerous friends and colleagues give up before they even started because they heeded the warnings of the twin giants on the artist's path, instability and poverty. We hear the same warnings when we try to start a business. You know how many businesses don't survive the first three months or lose weight? I tried that plan, but I couldn't survive without pizza or get fit. Where do you find the time? Some of us, though, possess enough of Coyote's cockiness and naivete to continue on the path. Maybe we grab a stick for protection, thinking, how hard could it be to get where I want to go? Surely I can meet the challenge if I hang on to this wholly inadequate weapon. But sooner or later, on the road to our dreams, we're going to walk whistling into what appears to be a tunnel, only to discover that we've actually stumbled into the belly of the beast. And this is where most folks lose their way. The unexpected turn of fortune can be debilitating. It can make us want to lay down and die, wailing at our misfortune all the way. But Coyote shows us another path. Instead of shutting down in despair, he assesses his surroundings with remarkable clarity and formulates a response based on where he's actually at. This approach yields a solution. If we're really stuck in a giant's belly, we're surrounded by food, so why are we starving to death? If we're really in a giant's body, we're actually in the best possible position to inflict some damage to the giant and get out of here, not only to get ourselves back on the path, but also to remove this obstacle for fellow travelers as well. The challenge is difficult, for the heart of the beast that seeks to devour us is huge and it's filled with hot lava. But if we're tenacious enough to persist in inflicting one small cut at a time, eventually we will prevail in slaying the beast that blocks our progress. When the path is blocked, forward motion can only happen with joy, for despair leads to inaction. When we find ourselves trapped it helps to have a sense of humor, for fear and anger aren't interested in solutions, only in poring over problems and savoring grievances. Finding our way out can only happen if we're flexible, for rigidity is blind to opportunity. Success can only happen when we're willing to accept things as they are. Denial is futility. Our journey from cradle to grave will be filled with obstacles large and small. How we get over and around them is up to us.
I offer you this story of the wily e. Coyote as an example of how acceptance, flexibility, joy, and humor are the best weapons we have against the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. You're welcome, Hamlet. What about you? What slings and arrows have you overcome on your journey? We'd love to hear from you. We're on all the socials, or you can reach us by email at livefromthelounge640 at gmail.com. That's our lounge. Remember that April showers eventually bring May flowers, and when life gives you lemons, it's time to make lemonade with a shot of tequila. And if life gives you a nice tax return this season, we'd like to invite you over to livefromtheloungepodcast.com where you can hit the donate button and help keep this podcast coming to you season in and season out. Here's the who did what. Our Lounge is produced by Ann Kloss Farley. Matt and Carol Olmos write our radio shows. Double Batch Daddy wrote and performed Feel That Hum. Sky Christie performed Black Lake. Sky Christie, that's S-K-Y-E-C-H-R-I-S-T-Y, all one word, is Georgia and Sophie Edwards. Our Lounge theme was composed and performed by John Ballinger, Charles Dayton provided the soundscape for The Big Question, and I'm your host, Keith Farley. We'll be back in a month or so with another collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you to learn, to love, to lounge.